forgot because i haven't had any sleep uh sleep is for we should <laughs> i'm tired i'm very tired are you gonna make me edit tomorrow don't make me edit tomorrow. do whatever you want wait a minute this is a partnership okay um do it when you can yeah yeah so oh mouth noises people people are always saying to me you know what there aren't mm-hmm. enough mouth noises in the podcast. Not nearly enough. Um, Mike was just playing uh, some Jethro Tull, one of my favorite songs, and um, I'm very was. jealous. I want to learn it. I've always wanted to learn it, and I realized that it involves a capo. Yeah, so and, um, I don't know. I you know who uses a capo? Keith Richards uses a capo well, all the time. Case in point, if you want to play like Keith Richards, I guess use a capo. Sure. Oh, o- yeah. Good point. Open open tunings. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he's like the master of the one finger chord. I, you know, the, the one I really want to learn, and maybe you can help me with this, is James Taylor. I yeah. love James Taylor. I just, the, the guitar parts are, I love them. I just haven't ever learned it. All right. Say uh, no more. Say no more. <laughs> Let's see. <clears throat> no, I screwed up the tuning, didn't I? Not on this one. Oh, good. Wait. Well. <laughs> <laughs> this is great. <laughs> it's that dorm room experience. There you go. Something like that. Sorry, sorry, folks. <clears throat> I should practice on my time, not Definitely yours. Definitely don't <laughs> practice on the show. In any case, um, are we ready? I mean, shit, oh, I'm just disrobing. Are we? <laughs> trying to take some clothes off because I'm not. I feel like I'm fucking drunk or hungover I or know. something because we were out till I I get home at eleven thirty. Yeah, bed by twelve o'clock because my son was up. Let's start the show and then talk about it. And we're back. Welcome to Recovery in the Middle Ages, the podcast about two middle-aged suburban dads in their pursuit of life, love, and recovery. I'm Nat X. And I'm Sleepy Mike. And boy, do we have a show for you today on RMA. Back for another dose of addiction recovery entertainment with Mike and Nat. Fresh (laughs) off our second date at a 70s rock band revival, Jethro Tull, (laughs) we have the distinct pleasure of speaking with author and co-CEO of Oral Recovery, the great Evan Haynes, and his new paradigm-shifting book on addiction, writ large, Can America Recover? Today, on a very special edition of RMA. And welcome, everyone. Can I just ask, uh, did you yeah. used to write copy for newspapers or anything? Um, I did a lot, of, not for newspapers, but I did a lot of ad copy okay. and article stuff. Yeah. Because you got you managed to get an awful lot in that first. Yeah, paragraph. yeah. Well, that's marketing. It's like how much can you fit? You got to get your whole message yeah. into a sentence. That's it's right. a headline or a blurb. And um, yes, yeah, very exciting. 
and uh, welcome. Welcome. This episode is brought to you by the Recovery in the Middle Ages Patreon. Uh, we are a listener-supported community recovery-based podcast, and uh, we are supported by your contributions to the Recovery in the Middle Ages Patreon. What is Patreon? It's a members-only subscription service featuring Discord, private messages, chat, and video meeting platform for all patrons. Mm. That sentence doesn't read well. It's like having recovery support family right at your fingertips. Members will also get extra mini-shows. They're coming. More. So, um... Why don't you tell the horse joke now? Because it fits right there. Right. So the a pony walks into a doctor's office. The doctor says, uh, well, what can I do for you? What's wrong? And he says, well, the thing is, Doc, I'm a little horse. <laughs> you know, horse. Yes. And right. then he says, why the long face? Yeah, right. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> also, you get exclusive merchandise for joining the Patreon. Our, yeah. Some of our members have gotten their uh, artfully designed mugs. And stickers. And stickers. Mm-hmm. And uh, so go uh, go to patreon.com slash recovering the Middle Ages to learn more and sign up. Yeah, it's been super cool. I think that um, the, the, main, the main attraction is the Discord discussion group and the Inner Sanctum. And mm. we've even got the great Rhina who has now joined uh, the Discord Inner Sanctum. So those of you who have been keeping up with his story, we're actually going to bring him on the show. Um, we are. Yeah, I meant to tell you that. Oh, great. <laughs> is he coming here? He, he's not going to come be here okay. in person unless he wants to. Um, but it's going to be exciting. We're going to get an update from him and see how he's doing. I think he's sounds like he's doing great, you know, and we're all uh, giving him as much support as possible. So yeah. hang in there, Ryan, and, and you know, we're, we're rooting for you, buddy. And if any of you other folks out there who are using, uh, feel like getting clean and becoming like the star of RMA for a while, just let us know. Yeah. We'll, we'll give you the same treatment. Yeah, we, we love, no pun intended, we we love supporting monsters and everybody out there who's just trying to Where make their the life better. What do you pun? mean the pun? What pun? No, you said no pun intended. You said it will give you the same treatment. Oh. Treatment. Fuck, yeah. You didn't say that was a good yeah. one. I thought you did that on purpose. <laughs> and, I don't do anything on purpose. It's all serendipity. It's all an accident. I just wanted to say. Did you? Welcome to all the monsters listening stateside, around the world, down the street, across the table, and right next that's door. Me, that's me. Welcome. Welcome all. Settle in, buckle up, and get ready for excitement, comedy, tragedy, intrigue, mystery, and so much more. Where can they find us, Mike? MiddleAgesRecovery.com. Yeah. Podbean, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and more. Come hang out with us. Get show updates. Meet other monsters. Funny memes. Latest news and videos on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Please join our Recovery and Monster Hangout Den on the private Facebook group found on our public-facing page under Groups. We also have weekly RMA recovery meetings chaired by the great G-Money Smooth, Grant, and the lovely and talented Aaron on alternating weeks or as they deem it necessary. Mm. If you are having trouble finding it, please email me at Mike R at MiddleAgesRecovery.com. Act now. <laughs> Do we have an 800 I number? One, well, just once. I will read it as you wrote it. Yeah. Okay. Are you Thank happy you. now? A little bit. I think okay. you did a great job. I have some performance notes for later. Okay. We'll work on those. Yeah. I know Pretty what you good. can do with those notes. I have a place for them. <laughs> Will great reviews be read on the Holy air? Holy shit. What? As we were sitting, as we are sitting here. Yes. Kyle pledged 11 Canadian dollars a month. What? For Patreon. Yeah. Thank, well, how about thanking them with a personalized message? We should. Thank you, Kyle. Kyle. This is, consider this your personalized message. Thank you. I don't know if we where we can use Canadian money, but thank you for the uh, offer. <laughs> it's just like American money, but it's got like a... A queen on it. I got a bird. I think there's a bird on it. A queen. I love queen. It's like Freddie Mercury on a coin. That's what I think of when I think of Canada. 
<laughs> oh, very cool. So yeah, thanks, buddy. The monsters on Patreon are multiplying. Uh, tell us your story by logging on Rabbit. to MiddleAgesRecovery.com. Um, great reviews will be read on the air. Uh, the best place to do that is the Apple Podcast app, uh, but we can also do it on Spotify. Uh, and just give us five stars, and um, it helps us reach more potential monsters. On Spotify, I don't even think they have to write a review. Yeah, we've got eleven um, reviews down on Spotify. Did I tell you? Are that? they reviews or are they just ratings? All I saw was ratings. I don't okay. know where the reviews go. Can anybody hear the dog? Because I can hear the dog. Mm, I'm just see, hear the dog. I'm tuning it out. Okay. Um, um, the other way you can reach us, and and this seems to have fallen off a little bit since the holidays, is you could give us a ring, give us a jingle, as they say. Yes, jingle me. Uh, you can jingle Nat. Jingle me. Call the RMA hotline at 516-888-6297. Leave us a message, keeping it from three to five minutes. That is actually inaccurate. They have to keep it to three minutes or else it will cut them off. They will feel oh, bad about themselves. Three minutes, to guys. Call back. Three minutes. Uh, tell us your story. Say hello or tell us how much the show means to you or tell us anything. Jokes, you know. Yeah. Stories. You know, we like dad jokes and mom jokes. You can read the opening of Canterbury Tales like Nat was doing before I yeah. started recording. <laughs> I should have. Maybe it'll be a special. I'll just read the Canterbury Tales. Is that the kind of schlock we're doing now? We're, gonna, we're just going to read. Just gonna read. We're going to read the Canterbury Tales into the microphone the and put it up Gads, on Patreon? Yeah, we'll do the Great Gatsby. Maybe we should refund that guy's Canadian money. Yeah. If that's what we're... <laughs> uh, anywho. Hey, do we have a monster speak? You know, when I don't get enough sleep, I feel like I'm on cocaine. Isn't it great? <laughs> it really It's a natural high, oh, ladies it, and gentlemen. It, yes, yes. Monsters speak, speak, speak. Uh, here's what I wrote on uh, the private Facebook group, which is uh, free, free of charge. You just have to like sign up and we have to approve you. And we probably will. I wrote, I was, having, crazy. I was having a discussion with a monster in the Inner Sanctum Discord server, and he was saying that he thought he might be obsessing too much over his recovery and wanted to take a break from all of the podcasts he's listened to, the books and the meetings. So my question uh, for you guys was, um, how much is too much recovery? Um, obviously, everyone's different, but uh, what is it for you? Like, where is your limit like when is enough enough uh, of doing recovery stuff um you're not asking me because i right well i'm gonna <laughs> read from the, the monster verse every, every day, day. Okay. cody says i do not have to eat sleep and breathe recovery i have a little over two years free of all mind altering substances unless you're going to get picky i love my black coffee and my vape god me too those black are my coffee two. and vape sounds mm. like a song it's, it's a good could one be, i love it but i feel the answer to that question is you have to do what you feel in your heart is best for you but don't shit on your recovery buddies yeah. you just cut unless, them off unless they're into that kind of thing. right <laughs> scat buddies and uh, be open and honest about what you're doing and keep in touch with your circle um i know what you're saying man like sometimes people will just peace out and like they don't tell, and then everybody in your your AA meeting or on your uh, Patreon server <laughs> just like wonders, like, oh my goodness, what happened to uh, to Nat? But um, yeah, thank you for that one, Cody. We actually had a couple uh, people email us privately and say, you know what, guys, uh, this Discord, this 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 constant talking all the time, day after day, is a little much. I'm going to pull back a little bit, you know, yeah. not participate as much. And that's perfectly fine. You got to do what's good for you. Do what's man. best for you, but, but think, make sure you're doing it for the right reasons. I mean, I can't tell you how many times over the course of me trying to get sober over the past, I don't know, 15 years, 
<clears throat> just trying where I made that excuse for myself in one way or another. And I was really just doing it to not be accountable to anyone. Well, that's important. You need to know the difference between doing it because you need to give yourself a little mental space and doing it to set yourself up for a relapse. <laughs> right. And you have to, you have to know yourself, you know, know thyself. know thyself. Kyle says my current recovery is binging the episodes until I catch up 18 left. Wow. Um, cool. Awesome. God, can you imagine listening to hours and hours of us talking? No. <laughs> I'm still amazed anyone listens to one. Yeah, yeah seriously. Uh, I just recently back on recovery, and I've listened to lots of recovery stuff in the last year or two, but don't want to have to rely on listening to it in the future. We don't want to have to rely on making it in the future. No. So, yeah, if everyone could just stop doing drugs, then we could take a break. Uh, maybe it should be the opposite of addiction. Start off full force and taper off as you feel comfortable, of course, with all the other work involved. But that's like my naive newbie opinion, man. Hmm. So he did a little of the dude in there. Yeah, not, not naive. Yeah. I think those are good points. Yeah. Um, Let's see. Well, the, you know that what that's from, right? Uh, the dude. Yeah. The dude abides. Yeah. Okay. The big Lebowski. Yeah, big Lebowski. I'm a right. huge fan of okay. that. Um, Rob S from the UK, another uh, patron who uh, he's been around and he's uh, he, he participates all over the place. So his opinion should be interesting here. My recovery is limited to the Inner Sanctum and RMA podcast. I've not done the regular group work side of recovery. Overdoing the literature and podcast means I hear too many stories of boozing, which mm. I find triggering. Mm -hmm. I feel like this is because I stopped drinking from a better position than others. Interesting. And I occasionally get that thought in my head about returning to drinking as a normal drinker. Ooh. Mm. That was chock full of um, interesting things to talk about. I mean, what did you... Think for the firstly, if your entire recovery program is the inner sanctum and RMA, a while ago I would have said that's horrible. Why are you doing that? But since we've got our, you know, we have our recovery meetings, which I forgot to mention at the beginning, yeah, Sundays at eleven thirty, and it's just such a supportive group, and it's almost like a book club. I feel like we're always discussing topics. Mm -hmm. It's not really war story based, so no. I totally get what you're saying. A lot of people talk about how it, it's triggering to hear, hear all these stories like if you listen to it's all bad yes when i first you know. started listening to it's all bad and to to, to, to dopey for to some extent um yeah he's, he's i was like out i was like eh, this is too much of this like it's i got i found myself listening to it and getting like excited like yeah. oh you know and and like internally mentally glorifying you know I, to the extent that you can glorify like um doing meth and, and breaking into people's houses. And well, shit. yeah. But and, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, wow, okay, the adventure, you know? Yeah, and uh, it's all bad, too. That's kind of their point. Yeah, that's like what it, I meant. It's but, all bad. But yeah. what happens sometimes is I'll, I'll be listening to that show and one of the guests will say, you know, it wasn't all bad. This was a really great time. So they're not like, well, yeah. but the truth is that, yeah, those, those stories can get a bit much, which is why we really like to talk about what our lives are like now. Right. You know, how we're living in recovery, and, and it's not like always with the war stories. And um, mm. yeah, and drinking from a better position, just like not a super low bottom. So you might feel like, you know, I could go back and I thought, drink, but I would avoid that. Excise, excise that thought from your brain, my friend, yeah. because it pops up from time to time in my brain. In fact, I had an IPNA today for St. Patrick's Day. Oh, real? That's right. St. Patrick's Day. St. Patrick's Day. Now. Um, I wore red because I'm red, green, colorblind. <laughs> Uh, I read somebody on the Facebook that described St. Patrick's Day as um, the 420 day for alcoholics. That's right. <laughs> Sounds about so, right. So um, tell us what you guys did. No offense did. to my Irish uh, <laughs> friends, you know, because there's much more to Irish culture than getting shit-faced in a bar. Although I 
typically that was what I did yeah. to celebrate my 17.5% Irish blood. Uh, anyway, moving on. Allie DP says, I think it's natural for recovery work to evolve over time. Uh, in the beginning, all I did was listen to stories of recovery. Uh, I could see part of myself in each person's story and therefore see myself recovering as well. I still listen to those types of podcasts, but I also love RMA because it's not just individual stories. It is recovery life. And yes, um, I think in the beginning, it's, it's really instructive to listen to people who have a little time on their belt mm. and get their story arcs down. And then after a few months, you start to realize the story arcs are very similar and yeah. they're like your story. Right. And then you identify with them. And then maybe you don't need to hear them quite as often. Right. That's you know? that identification thing because sometimes I can't tell you how many times I saw a speaker at one of these meetings and I said, wow, that's great for them, but they're nothing like me. And then they tell their story and I make those connections. Yes, yes. And then it would make me think, you know, if he or she did it, then, you know, maybe I can do it. Um, yeah. So that's a good part of that. But um, all right. Elizabeth S. says... I posted a long time ago that I thought Total Immersion was good at first, but I was going to listen to a book, Fiction for Fun, and almost felt guilty. There are times it's overwhelming, but every book podcast program leads to more information. Yes, I seek to be able to in uh, I seem to be able to intelligently converse with others about recovery and there's so much to know. So yeah, I guess it's a matter of balance. Great topic for the podcast. Yeah, thank you, Elizabeth. And here we are. Um, oh, the great Alan. Alan, you want to read Alan's? Alan says, well, you can read Alan because then Mike Ross weighed in. I should probably. Yeah, and his. you would be Mike Ross. Alan B., uh, another uh, inner sanctum monster, says, the 12th step tells us to practice these principles in all our affairs. Go out and have some affairs. Read a book, <laughs> hear some music, go to a country where you don't speak the language like that. My recovery is part of my story, not the whole story. Yeah. Boom. Gold star to Alan. Gold star. Uh, I love that one. Alan's got some some time, man. Yeah. Alan's great. And he's There's another like monster you could talk to on the uh, Inner Sanctum or he's on the um, the Facebook group. He's and, like a New York City wizard yeah. of recovery. <laughs> yeah. The RMA wizard. <laughs> and then we have another monster, Mike Ross. Yeah, man. And, so uh, um, what did he say? He said that I, I listen, first of all. I'm just going to riff off of what I said, because I like this topic. I really like this topic, because I've been wrestling with this a lot lately. How much is too much, right? Right. Do I want to keep doing this podcast? Right. It's a lot. <laughs> How much is too much, you know? But, you know, obviously, I'm uh, deep, I'm uh, balls deep in recovery. Yes, you as are. As they say, um, by virtue of doing the podcast, right? So, we review books, we review movies, We're we talk to people about recovery. But, so, like, this keeps me informed. And frankly, I didn't really know any of this stuff until I started because I didn't come from recovery school, like right. AA or rehab like or whatever. Yeah. I don't have a graduate degree in rehab or, you yeah. know, so, um, so a lot of this stuff was really like first impression stuff for me. And, and I like the idea that I can approach it without that history because it makes, I can look at it a little more dispassionately, I think like yeah. not coming out of that, but, um, but on the other hand, like I won't sit down and watch like, what's the new show that everybody's into now? Mm, single on, drunk female yeah that one or there's another one everybody's uh -uh. really into it. oh the um the one about the opioid crisis with um the guy who played batman see that one but there was another one there's a few anyway i don't listen i can't watch them I, oh like, euphoria it, euphoria yeah right? yeah I, I can't of. either like I'm, I'm just not like it's too much recovery i can't i need a break i i um 
you know, I don't think re- oh, euphoria is about recovery. It's it? not. Isn't that just get high on it? Oh, well, even worse. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's just like triggering. <laughs> what do scenes. I want to watch a whole bunch of people doing things that I don't do anymore? Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I don't know. Uh, like Alan said, recovery is part of my story. It's not my whole story. Um, and I don't like being defined by the thing I no longer do. Right. But, 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 uh, n- Narrowing the definition of recovery to no longer using alcohol or drugs misses the point, I think. Yeah. Because my whole life uh, post-substance abuse has been focused on changing the way I relate to the world and becoming a better person. Right. right? And hanging out with me. Yeah. A lot this week. Right. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Makes it up for lost time. But at at some point, like becoming your best person, maybe that doesn't have anything to do with drinking or not drinking anymore. No, it doesn't. Once it's in the rear view, once alcohol is a small and insignificant part of your life. Yeah. Or what did that guy say, uh, Grover Norquist say about government? He wants to shrink it to the point where he could strangle it to death in the bathtub. (laughs) So I feel the same way about like, you know, recovery or (laughs) about alcohol. You know, I just want to strangle it in the bathtub. Um, because if I if I hold on too tightly to my identity as a recovered person, I think that identification is self limiting. Sometimes I think it can be can be an impediment to progress. I've been thinking about that a lot lately. Not to interrupt you, but here I go interrupting you. Um, <laughs> you know, a lot of people in recovery, and I was listening to Dopey sometime this week, and um, I just it stood out to me because you know I talk to Dave a lot and. He doesn't strike me as someone suffering from addiction, you know, yeah. but he identifies as a junkie or mm-hmm. a heroin addict. And some people really, and we've talked about this before, they really identify with that and it gives some power to their recovery, I feel. So some people really need that. But for me, I couldn't wait to not be an, like an active addict and yeah. to stop identifying this way. But I don't know. I think to some uh, people it's, t- it's imp- empowering, but I think also to to some people may find it dis- disenfranchising. You know, um, yeah. if you or maybe as if maybe if you own the term, if if you identify yourself as as that and you own it, and that's that's you. It's when other people, yeah, you know, hear you identify yourself as that and then put you in a little box in their mind, right? You know, and and that's self limiting. But but uh, hmm. well, that's. I don't know what that is because who gives a shit, right? What other people think of you, but right. the, the stigma is real and this, and the yeah. stigma is an issue. Um, but where I don't mind it is, um, you know, if I talk to someone who's just starting down the road of recovery, then I am happy to take on the label to, to show somebody that, mm-hmm. you know, a future without alcohol or drugs is possible and it can be a great future and you can be living a nice Yeah, you don't have life, to suffer you know? the symptoms of uh, right. substance use disorder with the, the daily cravings and the chasing. I mean, but there's so much to do out there. Like, I, I can't spend so much time like sitting on the couch like uh, watching recovery stuff. Like, I yeah. mean, I love Evan's book. Like, we're going to talk to Evan today. I love this book. Yeah. I, but I, very intellectual but, pursuit. Like I'm reading it every day for like <laughs> a month and I'm like, I, I gotta stop reading this book. Yeah. They should call it. Can America finish this book? <laughs> That's, I mean, it's, it's solid. It's a legit. Oh, it's, not, it's incredible. And I recommend yeah. it to every one of you listening. It's, it's, it's a, it's well worth it. Right. Absolutely. Anyway, um, where are we now? I don't know. Uh, have, after you, there was, Oh, hope. Hope, 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 alive. hope D. She says, try to keep a balance, but sometimes I find myself immersed in black and white thinking. When this happens, I need to take a look at where I am and hit the reset button. The reset button. That would be this one. That's funny. 
Chris M says, when I first quit alcohol, it was important to be immersed in recovery content to help rewire my brain. Yes. I read and reread Annie Grace's book and listened to her podcast daily. I was on the Facebook uh, multiple times a day, interacting and posting. In time, my cravings lessened and then faded. And I didn't need that intense interaction and affirmation of the journey um, I had undertaken. What the fuck is that? <laughs> no, that, that's a point oh, that I want to return to. Good, oh, gotcha. Yes. Okay, yeah. we're, we're marking it. Yeah. Recovery and alcohol became background considerations. Yet, with some time, I also became somewhat complacent. And this allowed some what-if to thinking to creep in and led to a few backslides. Luckily, I quickly realized that this was not what I wanted and that uh, and that I had the tools to keep going in my sobriety and all of the positive things that had come with it and redoubled my efforts a little stronger and wiser for the experience. This is actually one of the reasons that listening to the RMA podcast has become my favorite recovery activity. Thank you. Uh, it is the right mix of sobriety discussion with lightheartedness and humor. Thanks so much for that. Thank you. So that made me happy. What I wanted to go back to was um, the, you know, when you're interacting in these groups multiple times a day in the early days of recovery, and then that sort of fades away because you don't need the inform- the affirmation and the interaction. Um, that was my experience with the stop drinking subreddit, which I found incredibly helpful to me in the early days. Mm. But it was so much of it was people coming on there and saying, you know, and, and I used it for this reason too. And I went to a work conference and I had to go to a dinner and I was, you know, feeling a little, uh, you know, nervous about that. And I put it out there and I got all the support back, but there's like two kinds of posts. There's posts like that. There's posts like I'm stopping today's day one, today's day 20, today, whatever. But there are also so many posts by people that say, Hey guys, I haven't been, I don't come around here much anymore. Mm-hmm. I've got a, a, you know, two years, whatever. I just wanted to stop back in and say hi and tell you that, you know, what you're feeling now, you can be like me and come back in two years and say, yeah. you know, hey, how you doing? You know, and, and it's worth it and you can do it. So that's interesting because I always would hear guys in AA, you know, tell us at beginners meetings, nobody comes back to AA after going back out and tell you how great things are going. You know, well, like, yeah, right. Um, but, but most of the people that go back there have maintained their sobriety. I don't think any of them come back and are like, it's different. Hey, I'm sort of drinking again. Yeah, no. AA. <laughs> so that's gotta love it got to love it um uh so let's that's enough moving on <laughs> we've had a very exciting week you know last week we had a an early show on wednesday and um so that kind of threw us off but uh we had a pretty um i had a very very um cool like reunion with uh, my friend chris who uh, did the the intro song with me in our old band, Kind of Me. And um, it's really cool. You know, he Available came, for streaming on? Uh, on uh, Spotify. Spotify. K-Y-N-D-U-V-M-E. And uh, it was really great. He's one of my best friends of all time. And uh, we wrote a lot of... I spent a lot of time in the studio with him. He has a recording studio. He does... He's like a real engineer. He has, you know, record mm. labels who hire him to do stuff. And uh, it was really great. You know, it, we had a big falling out. When I uh, fell off, you know, hard into addiction, we were playing in a band together and um, it just, my life spun out and he was not an addict. He, he didn't, I don't know, he, I could tell that he didn't know what to do with me, you know, and I got married and had a kid and we just really, it really sucked. So I'm really, really happy now that I'm healthy 
And um, I guess he's gotten over his negative feelings towards me, but um, we had a really great time. It's him and his fiance. Super. And uh, yeah, my wife made her famous um, lemon chicken, which is one of the reasons I married her. And uh, that it was really cool. But one of the things he kept bringing up, because we used to go buy guitars together. That was our thing. I used to have at least 20 electric guitars. Yeah. And he's got actually like 150 that he has cataloged in uh, like a database. Because he never did heroin. <laughs> no, he didn't. But like he's always, he, he started to ask me, he's like, well, remember that Les Paul we bought? And like, mm. do you still, have, you know, did, did you sell that one? And uh, the answer is I sold like all of them basically. And it wow. just hurts him because he's such a, he just, ugh, and it makes me feel worse. I try not to think about it. You well, know? you haven't sold one in a while, right? No. Now I got to start build, buying them again. That's what I've been doing. So oh, you've been buying? I Well, I bought a couple of guitars. I bought the Gibson Les Paul oh. Silver Burst Custom a few years ago. Okay. And I bought a new Taylor Classical C414. Nice. Yeah. Uh, or is it CE414? I love those Taylors. And um, yeah, so I'm building my collection back, but that really hurts me I, you know my sure, original electric guitar from high school i sold and i had a signed dimebag daryl washburn i mean signed by him uh the pantera guitarist so that was kind of painful but it was just so great to reconnect i haven't told him i'm doing a podcast yet yeah you well, know yeah. he he knows does he does he know that the song that yeah, you're using the band's music so what happened was <laughs> right before we started this podcast i was talking to him about he and i doing a podcast uh, called oh. i was wanted to be called stick around with uh, nat and chris <laughs> and uh that's good. And That's whatever, a good title. What happened, our podcast happened more quickly, and it just started to grow. Mm. So um, I actually, maybe I told a little fib or a not a complete truth, which I now feel awful about. And I said, can we use, you know, this song from our record on my friend's podcast? Right? <laughs> Am I the friend? You're the friend. <laughs> and, um, and then this the podcast here blew up, and now... I want to tell him about it because it's so cool. So many people now are hearing our you're songs. You're telling him about it right now. I, well, he's not listening. I haven't Yet. given him the... So if you ever do listen to this, Chris, I'm an asshole. And <laughs> I really want to tell you about this podcast because it's so cool, man. And uh, really, I want him to like do the mastering and engineering for the, the show. <laughs> well, That's there. the other thing because it would sound a billion times better if I just sent it to him. And, hey, uh, buddy. So we're yeah. using your song, but uh, can we... Use your you to engineer the podcast. Yeah. And he you would available do it. for that. He yeah. would do it too. It would be it would sound like the Mark Marin podcast or like it's it's that he's that good. Oh. Um anyway, so that was a, a fun time that I had. What about you? Uh I don't know. This week has just been a fucking grind. Except for last night. I want to talk about last night. Uh -oh. I want to talk about going to see We should talk lead, about last night. <laughs> we should talk about last night. <laughs> The lead guitarist from Jethro Tull. Everybody's favorite band from the 70s, yes. Jethro Tull. Speaking of the 70s, I don't think there's anybody there who was younger than in their 70s last night. What, what is the story? Why was I invited to this? You, you had because these you tickets. Because you liked Jethro Tull. But like, why did you have two tickets to Jethro? Or did you Be buy them after I said it? No, I, okay. bought, I bought them because always in the back of my mind, I think, well, Aaron might enjoy, <laughs> enjoy yeah. this. But knowing that she probably won't. Um... But she would go with me because she's a good sport, you know, and she'll support <laughs> and she'll sit there and like riff on the audience all night long. That's what I know? do it's, when my wife makes right. me go to Incubus. Okay. See, so you understand. I do. Um, 
But, you know, she's always like, if you can get somebody else to go, anybody else to go, <laughs> you should take them. And, uh, you know, we went to the Yes show, and you told me how much Aqu- the Al- Aqualung album meant to you in high school. Oh, yeah. So I figured, why not? You yeah. Know? It, it, was, it was really cool. And it was the first sober concert I went to since I quit drinking first that, concert that I went blew to me so, away yeah. for some reason i thought you had been to many more concerts oh, it was uh, covid but it's our second time because the first time we went to see yes we were both still drinking i was drinking covertly but he didn't know i was an alcoholic and we mm. were sort of set up if you guys don't know the story we were set up God, by our they wives must know the story <laughs> by now and we uh and it was kind of fun but this time like it's a completely different situation now we know each other we've got this whole Right. Situation, sober you know, buddies. sober buddies, tandem we sponsors. Did, we took out a sober buddy date <laughs> to the old man concert, a play date, as my wife. It, it was like the only uh, concert I've ever been to with a line for the men's room was twice as long as the line for the ladies' room. And there's two reasons for that. One, there were hardly any women there, right? And two, uh, men of that age have to go to the bathroom every ten minutes. That's right. So there was a whole lot of people climbing over other people in the room. Excuse me, Scott. Sorry, you got to get out of here. Oh, you know? I mean, we found the secret bathroom upstairs yeah, though, yeah. because this was in a, it was a very small show it was at Malloy College you know it was one of these things well, the audience is just dying there's not literally dying I was amazed watching some of them dance in their seats you know I'm like wow that guy can stand up yeah well wow. the, the canes and the walkers there know, was a the few end. of those um, but listen I mean I like the fact that you go out and you you still rock out with your cock out when you're in your late hey, 70s you know I'm gonna be doing and, it. and and you know the the performers well the the main performer and the original drummer from Jethro Tull. We're both 75 years old. Yeah. And that guy shreds like he's in Metallica. That fucking guy. And listening to Jethro Tull as much as I did, I had no idea that guitarist could do those things. Like, he was... <laughs> cry- it was amazing. He was playing these PRS guitars. Him and the other guitarist, who was the Ian Anderson, um, you know, sound-alike guy. And they sounded awesome. The sustain on those guitars yeah, is just like, amazing. oh my God. And I don't then, think anyone's listening anymore. No, but let me just say... <laughs> You know, the Aqualung record played front to back was brilliant, even without the flute. Yes. Um, it be, was still amazing. But uh, you put the best thing on here because I was going to insist on mentioning this. We were standing outside getting a little fresh air. You were maybe <laughs> a little vape. And we started talk, getting on this riff of like, what was it like? Um, Just cigarettes. Cigarettes and smokers and how you don't want to end up in an oxygen tent and die and like go wheezing. And then we look up and there's this old guy smoking a cigarette like right, just standing looks right at there us. who looks at us and just slowly Slow. walked in the other direction. <laughs> like he's, I don't want any part of this conversation. I mean, I didn't realize anyone was listening to us because I was talking about like, man, I don't want to smoke because I don't want to end up on a ventilator, you know, in my 70s, like, you know, <laughs> gasping for breath before I die. And he just kind of walked away. Yeah. Yeah, a better move would be to quit smoking, of course. But yeah. I still feel like yeah. an asshole because I'm vaping like a schmuck. You hardly vaped last night. I know. I just I hate having that thing. But it was interesting how many people were, uh, even at that age, were still like, you know, f- ripping the drinks back, and, and the oh, whole yeah. place smelled like weed. I mean, you know, I, <laughs> I did. And I'm looking around, and everybody there looks like they're they should be in a, yeah. in a nursing home. Absolutely. Know? Maybe they, there was actually a bus from the local nursing home that brought them there. Was there? No. Oh, well. It wouldn't like have it. surprised me. Um, it was so cool, though, man. That was yeah. great. Let's do another one. What's the next 70s revival? Steely Dan. Steel and Dan. Steely That's Dan. That's uh, the cover band. It's called Steel and Dan. Have you ever really? heard of them? Really? No. Yeah, it's local. They're very good. You know how Steely Dan got their name, right? It's a, I don't. A Steely Dan is a, uh, a dildo oh. from uh, Naked Lunch. It's I a s- Naked Lunch. 
It is. Yeah. I just read Naked Lunch last year. You missed the Steely Dan part. Huh. I have to. Mm. I'm never reading that again, though. Um, cool. So we had a great sober date. Yeah, it was good. We didn't drink. But anyway, we got home and then I couldn't fall asleep. I didn't fall asleep till like two thirty. Right. So I got home, you know, and I have this guilt. I don't know if any of you out there also experience this because I spent so many years away from my family at meetings or just being out there in active use. Ever since I got sober, I'm uh, I, I have this anxiety about leaving my family at home, even though, you know, I just, and my wife's like, just go out. Even my son was like, I want you to be happy, daddy. That's all. And I'm like, thanks, Max, you know, but I got back at 12 o'clock. My oldest waited up for me and, um, yeah, I'm exhausted, but, um, excited to be here. Yeah. Um, what else do we have time? Evan's in the green room. Evan's in the green room. I just wanted to, uh, a couple of more things. Uh, Noah's got his Nisma solo tomorrow, which uh, is a trumpet solo that we've been working on together. I'm very excited about that. And um, Sergeant Slaughter contacted me. Everybody remembers him. He's back in recovery uh, at least a few days ago, and he messaged me, and he ran into John the Can Man. Ah. So they ran into each other at a local AA meeting. So uh, Sergeant Slaughter, I hope you're doing well. And um, I don't know. I guess we should probably... Yeah, we'll probably get started soon. So um, anyway, guys, this week um, we got a really special guest at RMA. His name is uh, Evan Haynes, as we said. And uh, in addition to being the co-founder and co-CEO of the Oro House Recovery Centers, uh, Evan, along with his partner Bob Forrest, are the authors of a new book, Can America Recovery, which is a sprawling look at the past, present, and future of the recovery movement in America and where America itself fits into the addiction narrative. Thanks for having me. You, yeah, I was sitting in the green room listening to you guys. You were talking about Jethro Tull, who I saw in 1990, <laughs> and Steely Dan, who I saw in 2005. Probably two of the best shows I've ever seen. Yeah. Oh, yeah. and Steely Dan. See, that's the next one. We we're talking about what other 70s <laughs> revival acts do we want to see in Steely Dan? I didn't realize you could well, hear half of them are, are dead, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, Only yeah. Fagan's alive. Right. Hmm. But he's, he's still going out. He didn't want to go out and use the Steely Dan name, but the record company sold him. Yeah, because you'll sell more tickets. And he was like, okay. You know. Thank goodness. Yeah. I know David Byrne, um, you know, doing his kind of tour. And I saw him at Coachella, the last Coachella a couple of years ago. And he was playing all the Talking Heads hits. That was oh, wow. Yeah. Well, he's yeah. got that Broadway show now. Um, exactly. Yeah. It was basically that, but, okay, which yeah. includes a lot of Talking Heads stuff. Yeah. Cool. Cool. So, uh, Nat and I have been reading your book for a long time, a couple of months. I'm so uh, sorry. I didn't even realize how long it was. I've been reading it for an audible. <laughs> oh, you oh finally do God. an audible. I couldn't, I wanted yeah. an audible so bad cause I have bad ADHD. Um, Me too. but I really worked on it and I really loved it. I yeah. Really it was really it. something. Um, you know, most of the, most of the books that we read are, uh, recovery memoirs or even ones that sort of, sort of attack, um, addiction or recovery from a specific angle. I'm thinking of like Maya Solovitz goes in from, from yeah. one angle and, um, and Dr. she's great. I yeah, she's awesome. Quite a bit. She, and Anna Lemke of course has the, um, the, um, isn't she dopamine nation, the dopamine nation yeah. book, you know, yeah. but this is, um, a, 
sprawling, wide-ranging um, thesis almost on addiction and recovery in America. And um, to that end, I was I was kind of jotting down a few things. And if you don't mind, I'd kind of like to start by maybe sort of crystallizing what I see the thesis of your book as, and then we can sort of go back and you can tell me where I got it wrong, where I got Please. it right, and... Um, and we can sort of take off from discussion. Yeah. Does that work for you? Very good, counselor. Okay, Continue. thank you. It's, it's not a deposition. It's, uh, <laughs> okay, so okay, so it seems to me that the thesis or like a central part of your book is that the way we treated addiction and addicts in this country is misguided. Um, addiction, not a disease, but a learned behavior, which is a wholly appropriate response to trauma and an understandable response to underlying mental health issues that are at the root of many uh, addictions because traditional psychiatric treatment is ineffective at best and damaging at worst, uh, that we treat the symptoms of the individual rather than the underlying structural problems in society. And by treating the addict as a scapegoat, we absolve ourselves from tackling the larger, more intractable social mm. problems of alienation and isolation. And the way to treat addiction is through compassionate care, deep listening, and creating an environment where the individual feels empowered to use utilize the healing power that already exists inside them a la Carl Rogers person-centered therapeutic approach. Mm. How'd I do? That's perfect. And, and it's interesting <laughs> because I, I set out really to just write another book in that kind of existing um, canon, I okay. guess, of uh, it's, it's, it's a newer field, I suppose, in some ways, like sort of the social um, determinants of health and social causes of addiction and, and all of that, uh, you know, even Gabor Mate's adverse childhood experiences. Mm -hmm. I wasn't, I wasn't planning on saying anything too different. And in a way, uh, you know, we, we didn't, we, we really just, uh, echoed. And it was funny just before this, um, podcast, I was reading, uh, it occurred five months before, uh, Carl Jung died in 1961, but his and Bill Wilson's correspondence, which was, right. Bill Wilson reaching out to C.G. Jung and C.G. Jung replying in seven days. Mm. This was five months before he died. Mm. Wow. Um, and so Bill Wilson was basically saying, your work with Roland H., Roland Hazard. Right, Roland Hazard. Um, where you basically said, I'm sorry, but psychiatry uh, isn't going to help you. I can't help you. What you need is a profound spiritual experience. And... Um, that, you know, Roland H comes back, he joins the Oxford group. He helps, uh, Abby, Bill's friend who then helps Bill, who basically realizes that he too needs to have this spiritual experience. So what, what Carl Jung says it is, and, and cause by the way, too, Jung and Freud hundred year, 120 years ago, they were talking about trauma. Mm -hmm. We all think discussions around trauma and the kind of neuroses and mental health problems that gives us later in life is like a new thing. It's, it's yeah, very old. Tell me about your mother, you know. Right, exactly. And and in fact, uh, Carl Jung, at one point, he used to deliver these uh, weekly talks. And, and at one point, he says, look, it, if you, I've been listening to, you know, people telling me about mommy and daddy for 40 years, like, I'm not interested. You, you can go talk to someone else if you want to talk about archetypes and mm -hmm. the soul, you know, then we can talk. The collective um, unconscious is another thing about C.G. Jung that I love discussing. Well, exactly. And so, so what he's telling Bill Wilson in these letters is like, people drink alcohol because they yearn to be basically brought into union with the divine. Mm -hmm. That's what it is. And so 
we experienced a separation. Um, it's hard to say when exactly, but perhaps 50,000 years ago, we start seeing cave art. Uh, it, it suggests there's now some separation that people felt guilty around maybe the hunt attribute kind of the causes of this to something outside of themselves to some superpower but we became separate from nature mm. which was important it led us to where we are now in the same way that i think in our addiction that separation and that kind of you know wild journey and odyssey that we go through leads us to where we are today so now though it's about re reconnecting and kind of reunifying ourselves but obviously it's never going to be the same way that it was before wow we're doing it now consciously this this sort of harkens back to some of my studies um about naturalism and you know emerson and walden pond and all of that you know the way that they were trying to reunite with nature and the you know the transparent eyeball and it, it's great i love what i love about your book is it goes to the holistic like going back to the history of it, you know, and some people wouldn't want to read all of that, you know, detailed history and stuff like that. But by the time you get through that stuff, it gives you a perspective on the current problem that you just can't get any other way. And I, I just think that's, you know, so important. I don't, well, exactly. And I don't think like I knew what homelessness was, for example, before, you know, we wrote the book before I researched, like, what is this? And, and, and of course, you know, in the homeless population, it pretty much mirrors the, the, the larger society, about 40% of people who are homeless have mental health problems. So it's not that the, the common misconception, and it was my misconception was that uh, homelessness is caused by mental health problems. It's really not. But I think how we treat homelessness is at the root of the despair that we're in that has led to all of our collective mental health problems, if oh, that makes sense. It, yeah. It, what I thought was interesting is uh, the statistic you cited that uh, the homeless populations typically, the mental health occurrences in, in that population is not vastly different from the population at large. It's, identi it's identical. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Homelessness and mental health, you, you, you seem to sort of peg it more as a function of, uh, of a, a poor society as opposed to an individual yeah. right and yeah. and you sort of draw that development through through history and sort of the criminalization of the, of the mentally ill right and, the po poverty laws or i can't the remember poor houses the and all that kind of thing did, did was that sort of a, a simultaneous rise between that and and sort of the uh, capapitalist economic system mm. or um, or is it is it associated so. with the rise I of organized religion because it seems like all that kind of already, fits together somehow, right? Well, it was it was definitely Calvinism and Protestantism that sort of uh, marked this turn in the ruthlessness uh, toward which we treat um, the Puritans. Is it like the Puritans? And because they were homeless, something must be wrong. If you're mm. sick, it's God punishing you, type of thing. Well, exactly. So it's it's this idea of of the the sort of chosen few. Um, and so it really started happening probably in the middle ages with all kinds of land clearances and empire building and, um, plagues and wars and, uh, uh, famine. Um, and there was just all of a sudden in Europe, there was just this huge population of like homeless people. 
And that's, remember, when the leprosaria, which were run by the Catholic Church, where they believed that that, that charity was the, the way in which they themselves would achieve salvation. Right, right like the, the Jesuits. Of, of, well, exactly. And, but even like, they were, they were called Lazar houses because Lazarus, you know, mm-hmm. had leprosy in this life, but sat, you know, at the side of Abraham or whatever in the, or, you know, in the, af- in the afterlife, there was a great reversal. But by the time the Protestants uh, came along, I mean, this was a sign of, of, of sinfulness if you were suffering from homelessness or mental health problems or physical health problems. So um, those leprosaria, of which there was 19,000 across uh, Christian Europe, those all, it took a couple hundred years, but those all con- converted into the first um, asylums. Mm. You know, so we're looking at the, 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 the connection between homelessness and mental health isn't kind of this simplistic way we look at it. Oh, you have a mental health problem, you're going to end up homeless. The chances are homelessness is caused by, you know, extreme poverty um, instead. And so the connection is that there was no, like, asylum to treat people with mental health problems there was no prison and there was no poorhouse they were one facility yeah well i mean that's interesting because when you have the idea that a person's intrinsic value is sort of measured by their productivity then if you're not productive then there must be something wrong with you right it's right what is productive like what does that mean is that you're producing goods and services are you providing some service and i guess that's what goes back to like this the rise of capitalism you know, and, and I think, you, you interestingly, you're, you're drawing, what I got out of it is you're almost blaming capitalism in certain ways. Not saying you shouldn't, but just that overall the way society has sort of developed under capitalism and how it overvalues people who can make money. And really money in itself is worthless unless you assign value to it. I mean, we even commodify well, art here, you know, so yeah. it's, it's, well, exactly. Everything's a commodity. Yeah, I, I, I was going to say, like Alan Watts says, I mean, we confuse wealth and money so much so, like, it's kind of like our, our fixation on money is the, the same thing as, like, kind of eating the menu. Like, we're, we're, <laughs> we're totally missing, and we're missing the point. And, and, I mean, yeah, I would blame capitalism, but I think, again, I think that that separation occurred uh, in the Middle Ages, perhaps um, earlier, but certainly in the Middle Ages, you started seeing some of these clearances and, and, uh, it's it's war it's like we emerged from one thing which you know we are primates and we emerged from a from a hierarchical uh system you know that could be super violent um probably anxiety producing uh and then we become slowly we become conscious and we become aware and it's that we're aware of it now that creates the problem if we're mm-hmm. not aware of it there, there's no suffering right ignorance is bliss <laughs> yeah so 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 i mean it's gotten bad under capitalism but it certainly didn't start under capitalism and um but and 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 even going back to animals i mean jung would say like even animals are better behaved than we are and we had best kind of uh uh you know kind of come into some contact with our animal nature because at least animals kind of look out for each other and take care of each other. Um, we don't even do that. Yeah. Well, it's uh, interesting that our 
our hierarchical structure and the way we organize ourselves changed a lot once we started settling in one place and engaging in agriculture. So, I mean, I think, mm. you know, that, that has something to do with them. With that, you have the rise of, of, of different, uh, different structures, um, different hierarchies, you know, than you, than you saw in a hunter gatherer society. Uh, mm -hmm. so maybe, maybe it's, maybe we need to go back to, um, you know, hunting and gathering, perhaps. But, yeah, well, <laughs> you, you don't think that you know if the the society's like um, infrastructure and and the, like our money system, if it developed differently, you don't think maybe people would still pursue feeling better? Do you think? I mean, people would still have pain, right? But perhaps right. we would be dealing with it differently, maybe. Well, I mean, it's called chronic treadmill, so there's ups and downs. Mm. I think that, that the whole thing would just be ratcheted up so that our worst day, um, you know, wouldn't even be remotely anything like our worst day now. And, you know, I'm thinking collectively too, like, uh, you know, one's worst day might be not eating any food at all, mm. uh, might be being bombed. Um, so it's all relative, but we can tell even here in kind of the lap of luxury that like something's wrong and again i think it's like it's like jung said it's back to um craving like 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 a thirsty man in the in the desert like for that union for that mm. unity and that connection to the divine i mean there's no other way to put it and he's writing bill wilson basically talking about roland hazard um saying i couldn't tell roland hazard all of this because everything i said then was so misunderstood jung had to pass himself off as a scientist because he was you know so afraid of being and probably rightly so of being so badly misunderstood but discredited um that no one would have taken him seriously had he admitted what he actually was which was a mystic and probably some kind mm. of prophet i i love that carl jung had so much to do and i learned this later i've i've been in recovery a long time started with aa and court mandated but when i've started to learn about how much carl jung like was involved in the philosophy it kind of made a lot more sense because you you know some of the things you're saying uh, as far as we're we're yearning for the divine, um, but uh, one of the other points that Carl Jung was making, or one of his philosophies, is that we are all one. Mike is me. I'm him. I'm Evan. Evan is me. And so the A the AA principles of maybe not principles, but like the, the one alcoholic talking to another. It's really unifying with yourself in a way, and that these community, just like you're doing at Aura, you like that? That's a good one. Yeah, I don't know if I agree. You know so we're unifying with each other, which unifies us with the collective unconscious and quote unquote God, and that that is where the healing comes. Just like at Aura Recovery, you're talking about that you're all kind of you're hanging out, you're being together. It's not this, you know, like shaking your finger at them, making them feel bad. You're just connecting, connecting being the most important uh, thing to get yourself closer to God, but really closer to yourself through others. You don't like that? Well, yeah. No, no. I think I think that there is definitely a sort of undercurrent of of compatibility. Like every everybody is basically everybody else. I, I I'm sort of take a Vedantic Zen approach to that. You know, <laughs> Buddhist. Um, yeah, I, right. He's a but, bit of a Buddhist, which is okay with me. You know, <laughs> I just—I mean, do you draw a distinction between like spiritualism and religion? <clears throat> because it seems like organized religion has really sort of 
sort of if if anything and certainly from you know from what i can see from like the judeo christian perspective is sort of um exacerbated the separateness between individuals rather than drawing uh, the idea that we're all one, so to speak, you know? Right, right. Well, I mean, and what's so interesting, um, yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, and I might get some grief for this, but I think it's largely a dead religion because all religions are based on the initial mystical uh, experience. And we're so cut off from that because, of course, who is providing the means of the mystical experiences? At, at the time during the earliest church uh, and before, of course, I'm, a, I'm personally a believer in the pagan continuity hypothesis that mm. um, Christianity and Abrahamic religions and um, all of the religions, I mean, even if you look at Hinduism, they talked about Soma wine and the Eucharist and Christianity, um, that these were potions and they were prepared by medicine women and sorceresses in underground churches and home churches and um that we start so not only did we go around the world i'm saying we as like the west christians uh not only did we go around the world stomping out you know any signs of these uh, traditional ways of life uh we did it to ourselves first um everything we knew about uh Gnosticism, for example, until the Nag Hammadi codices were found in uh, 46 or 47 in Egypt. Um, everything we knew before that, uh, most of it anyway, came from uh, uh, Bishop Iranius, who was called the heresy hunter, mm -hmm. who went around finding all these Gnostic texts. Mm -hmm. And it was his job to kind of form the canon and to get rid of all this weird stuff. Right. I mean, if you read, if you read these, these, um, gospels i mean they're as weird as as it gets yeah and the lost and, gospels too you always hear about that i'm, I'm also a fan of paranormal podcasts right mm -hmm. and the, this comes up a lot in alternative history these the lost books the books that at the council of nicaea constantine the first said no we're not right. putting those in and there's all of this crazy aliens <laughs> stuff but very mystical <laughs> stuff right. It was, and it, yeah, it wasn't just Arrhenius, but it was him railing against it that we knew so much about it. And it's kind of like one of those things, like the, it's like the PMRC, like it, it, it more like, you know, grabs your attention. My favorite Christians to read, they're all heretics. They're all, um, you know, Meister Eckhart, uh, uh, Jacob Bohm. Um, there's a number of women. Um, well, all of the them had these kind of weird, weird uh, near-death experiences and, you know, um, kind of visionary experiences, but yeah, this is the mystical experience that's at the heart of all religions. But we um, abjected ourselves, you know, the West did, where we had this like antidote to our problem within our own tradition all along. Mm -hmm. Jung tapped into it um, way before we went out and started stomping it out everywhere else we could find it too. The problem is we built uh, our American society on the basis of yeah. the flawed understanding of that knowledge as opposed to the knowledge in its purest form. And that has given us right. a whole basket of problems that we're dealing with today, which necessitated you writing this this book in the, in the first place. Right? Did you know that the word Gnostic, the root is Gnosis, which is Latin for knowledge? That's one of my yeah. favorite little yes. facts. Sorry. And it's to know and it's to have... And it's to have a direct experience with that with that knowledge. Very and, interesting. Uh, yeah, that's so, what's missing. So, so, so 
you know, you're positing this, this, this theory that in order to sort of get some real progress wrestling with issues of addiction and lack of connection in the society, we basically have to rebuild the paradigm from the ground up or adopt a new paradigm. How do we yeah. do that? Yeah, how impossible is this, Evan? <laughs> because like, this this country seems very addicted to 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 being the way it is. And I know you think we can do it, and you said Bob doesn't think you can do it. <laughs> I was just re-listening to your uh, your dopey interview, and you were talking about how you know you have faith that can be done, but your writing partner Bob not so much. So how do we do it? Well, I mean, it's like the addicted person. Like, so what, we have a rock bottom experience. I mean, as we know, those are endless. Um, so it's when we decide we're, we've had enough, like we can't, we can't keep going like this. And it's being able to imagine, right, when we're at our lowest point, that there is another way of living. Because, you know, not only is it sort of the paradigm, I guess, of like, you know, um, that, you know, these awful ways we, we treat our neighbors and the sort of selfishness and the isolation. Um, it's the rationalism. Uh, it's the um, sort of disbelief in the impossible, right? Like, oh, no, 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 that's impossible. Right. I mean, this, this solution is going to have to be like, we need hopeful people. We need these sort of uh, Don Quixotes tilting at windmill, windmills like myself, I suppose, mm. <laughs> um, who are interested in making the impossible possible and making the invisible visible. Um, so how do we do it? I think, first of all, we question everything we thought we knew. And we, you know, it doesn't mean we have to be um, combative or hostile about it, but we speak out and mm. we speak up whenever we kind of hear somebody saying things we don't believe. So break and, our anonymity? Uh, You'd say we'd have to break our anonymity. I know this is a sticking point. Yeah, I mean, to me, all that stuff doesn't bother me. I mean, God, everybody's addicted to, to something. <laughs> right. It, you know, it's, again, I, I don't know. Yeah. I'm not so worried about that. Like, we're messes. Like, it's like the person hiding in their, you know, closet, you know, drinking, like they think they're hiding, like right. mm -hmm. none of us are hiding. No, everybody it's so knows. obvious. It's so, it, everything has become uh, translucent at this point. It, it, we, we can see through everything. We can see light at least through everything. So a one-on-one -on -one, um, seems like a challenge. I mean, do, does society need to hit some sort of a rock bottom itself before <sighs> we arise Phoenix-like from the ashes with this new understanding? Yeah. Um, and I mean, I think we're there. I, I don't know how bad the shocks are going to be. I mean, my personal theory is it's emerging anyway. It's all going to happen anyway. Mm. Um, it's either going to happen the easy way or the hard way. Uh, what I don't want to see happen, though, is for like um, a number of us to be wiped out because I think human consciousness is very important. Mm -hmm. I think it's like, geologically speaking, again, if it started emerging 50,000 years ago, and really just started kind of um, popping in the last like 10,000 years, uh, that's like, brand new and everything good that could happen. And, and, and by the way, I'm not necessarily against capitalism. I'm not against civilization. I think everything um, there, there was a fellow I, I admire quite a bit. He says, you can't have nice things without civilization. Mm. So I'm, I'm not talking about a return to hunter gathering. I'm not talking about return even to little pockets of, 
you know, these little utopias. I'm talking about the whole thing. Um, I think there will be, uh, and this is the idea of Stuart Kaufman, who's invented a concept uh, called emergence theory, mm. uh, and they have an, uh, a kind of a think tank, I guess, uh, 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 called the Santa Fe Institute. You can look him up. But um, he talks about there being like kind of a world uh, civilization at some point, or maybe three, uh, and, and they'll all kind of be connected, and it'll allow for a lot of diversity and variety but uh, we will tackle these problems that, as we've begun to see now with COVID, and now again, like I grew up with the threat of nuclear war mm. um, and certainly climate change uh, and water or whatever it might be in the future, uh, that the, we have to tackle these problems collectively. But if, if, we look at, if we look at the way America responded to COVID, for example, yeah. uh, not our finest hour, really. No. And, and American society... I think, I, I don't know where you said somewhere, maybe it was an interview, you said America uh, is addiction itself, right? I mean, it's a, it's a consumerist society. It runs on excessive consumption and credit and all this other stuff. And it's, it's like the very fabric that underpins the way that America works in the world. Yeah. So you're talking about unraveling so, social mores and culture and everything and sort of rebuilding it from the ground up. And I, I'm just... You know, I I like to think I'm an optimist, but I look around at, at what's going on in the world and what's going on in this country and the way we treat each other, and I, I have a real hard time feeling that optimism. I'm optimistic. See, I'll, I'll be Evan to your Bob Forrest, okay? okay? I, I'm very optimistic. Now, when you say black, I'll say white, because what I saw during the pandemic was a lot of people changing their lives. Uh, and to more meaningful lives. Okay. A lot of people took, including sort of myself, um, I think I took that opportunity to grow spiritually, uh, to yes. grow intellectually. Because you're, you're white, upper middle class, and you have the luxury of being able to sort of recreate your own but, existence. But I have a beard and I tan easily, you know, so it's not always <laughs> easy for me. But the truth is also, though, I have seen a lot of positive changes due to covid and, you know, maybe this is what we need globally is something that shocks the system, maybe not a bottom, but it, it forced everybody to kind of re-look at what we were doing, what there was happening in their lives. Now, of course, there's a lot of division about it because it was such a massive undertaking. More polarized than we've ever been. Polarized, but I feel like a lot of people who weren't uh, woken up, I hate to say woke, that weren't aware you know, I feel like people did become more receptive today. And I got to tell you, Evan, um, I changed my life in, a, in a several different ways during uh, the pandemic. And one of them is I've, I've been inserted into this a toxic corporate culture for the express purpose of changing, uh, what is the dynamic, to bringing positivity to this, this company. It's this big company. And there was a lot of toxicity. There was a lot of bad things that went on. And I was brought on to be the director specifically to change the culture because I was viewed as a positive person with experience in business and so forth. But I'm seeing people be receptive to my attitudes in this toxic corporate culture. And I feel like people might be, I'm hoping, more receptive to this now, to compassion, you know. And, um, but they also, they're war-weary, war you know. Yeah. We have this COVID and now we have what's happening in Ukraine. Um, well, I would say too, um, you know, because we are in a privileged uh, position, 
um, as Americans, as white Americans, as white male Americans. Um, what that means actually is that the rest of the world is is like ready to go. They're just waiting for us, right? To to join them. So actually relatively few of us have to decide like oh my gosh look at this history look at everything we've stolen and mm. and all of these like you know we, we 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 justify it but like these advantages that we have at at the cost of uh other people's comfort and well-being mm-hmm. so it's really just about us deciding like oh my gosh, like, I can't do this anymore. This is awful. I don't even like this. The thing I've been taught to like and to kind of go after is like killing me. Mm-hmm. And worse, worse for others, worse for others. It's just making me miserable and uh, it's it's doing much worse to others. Yeah, I yeah. think uh, it, it is. And um, I don't know, but like you, I have to believe we can pull ourselves out of it. And it's People like you writing a book like this, speaking out, and also living these examples. And I think we can bring it back to uh, addiction and recovery because this is sort of symptomatic. The way we treat, you talk a lot about, you know, how we mistreat, you could even say, uh, people in recovery and look the way, like just the way I was treated. Uh, I had a DWI and I was in the system uh, six years ago. Uh, and I felt like a criminal and everything you say about what's wrong with, you know, traditional recovery, I experienced firsthand, but it, it looks like that there's more voices out there. More people are treating it differently. I mean, and you must see that on a daily basis at oral recovery. I mean, I don't know, you would know better than I, how, you know, you probably get people who've been elsewhere and they tell you about their experiences, I mean, what's that like from your perspective? It's so odd. I mean, we treat people, it's so, it seems so simple, but we treat people kindly. We treat them with dignity and respect. And to them, it's like this profound revelation because no one in all their other treatment experiences, their families, nobody, no one has treated them with compassion. Right. They can't believe it. uh, They can't believe it. They can't believe it. And so, you know, and in this case, too, I'll tell, every other treatment center in america like this is what makes us different you know if you want to do good treatment do this and i and i and i think it is kind of catching on we call it the compassionate care model but i hope everybody copies us so rehabs in america have sort of a checkered reputation and certainly a, a success rate is just not statistically there for for many of them and um how, how do you guys stack up in the, in that area? I mean, have you done any sort of um, you know quantification and of of your success rate? And what do you, how do you define success at oral recovery? And yeah. what do you look well, at? That's the that's the big question. I mean, how do you define it? So traditionally, it's measured in terms of abstinence, and we have tracked some of those outcomes. So we have people who completed our program, um, who I think like. You know, fifty percent are maintaining their recovery uh, one year out, mm, and that's wow. amazing. That's and that's, great, that's, and great. that's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, but I mean, it becomes more fundamental too. Like, what's their quality of life? What? Mm-hmm. What? Is, how do they feel? And that's such a. It's such a. It's so hard to measure that. Um, you know, because of course we could like help all of these clients adapt to this world. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is useful. I think it's helpful, but 
that's not really like the work that we want to do. Um, I, I, Bob tells a story in, in, in the book. He's at Hazelden in like 1988 or something. And he remembers his counselor saying like, you know, Robert, when are you going to live like a normal life? <laughs> and, he, and he goes, hopefully never, never. hopefully <laughs> never. And, and, you know, here we are, uh, however many years later, my math's horrible, 30 something or whatever years later. And he's like, still never, still never. Right. Um, right. So again, it's, it's, it depends how we measure these things. Um, I mean, that's not an easy road though. Yeah. You know, I mean, people, the, the American hologram is extremely powerful and it's extremely, did uh, you say hologram? I did. Interesting. I, I like that. Ah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Me too. Uh, <laughs> because, Trademark. you know, you're rewarded for compliance basically, mm. yeah. you know, uh, the, the thinking outside the box is, is typically you have to, you have to have a certain fortitude to be willing to go forward with that as your, as your life, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. And not, I don't, I don't know if any, if everybody is really up to that task. Well, no, because um, if I may interject, of course, I feel like, you know, I agree on hundred percent the way that we need to have these like uh, client specific programs and quality of life. But one of the reasons that so many of these programs uh, concentrate on how many days do you have, from the last time you, you know, drank or the last time you used. Now, we all know that that really isn't the measure of success necessarily, but they probably do that because they don't know how else to measure it. Mm. You know, we yeah. talk about that all the time, you know. We we focus more on how am I feeling? What are my relationships with my family like? What, what are my f- relationships with, you know, my business or all of that? Like, that's really the measure for me you know, for my recovery. It's also important that I don't, you know, do the things I'm trying to stop doing, drugs, alcohol, and so forth. But, you know, even like if Bob, for example, since we're discussing him, if he's, you know, said to you, you know, Evan, um, I need to have a joint to go to bed every night, you know, but it made him happier and he was sleeping through the night and his life even got better, you would never say, well, he's not sober anymore and he's not in recovery you know, because it's not that simple. So, I mean, maybe that's part of it. It just, it simplifies it just by, you know, sober days, but it doesn't quite get to it. And I don't know when that happened that, and, and, you know, we were talking about the culture. I think it goes back to the sort of puritanical, there's a whole history in America of the difference, I guess, uh, between the temperance and the abstinence movements. And, And they kind of went back and forth before AA, but I think it's this idea of like, it's kind of a purity mm. notion that I'm not sure is realistic. You know, they talk about kind of California mm-hmm. sober nowadays. And Bob and I were talking just the other day and, you know, he happens to be 100% abstinent, but he thinks that when he dies, that might be it. That that generation that he kind of came up mm. with and all they all kind of got sober together, yeah. they, they were real junkies. Uh that they that that won't exist anymore. Mm. That the kind of drug addicts that they were, which was really like they were reading Kerouac and Burroughs, and they mm-hmm. wanted this kind of magical life. And I mean, um, you know, you were talking about even uh, Thoreau and Emerson. I mean, it's kind of this romantic uh, tradition, and I, I think it was a good one. And that's dead too. Yeah. Um, but that uh, it, it's. Maybe the good news is the silver lining is we're we're at least looking at things in a little bit uh, 
more of a, a nuanced way. Um, and I think we have to be open to that, especially with like medication assisted treatment. Yes. Yep. You know, and that's uh, Maya Salvitz, this whole thing. Like, here we have a solution that uh, can lead to the reduction of overdoses by 50 to 60%. If we're treat as treatment providers, if we're not taking those kind of numbers seriously and opening our mind as kind of recovery people to that, uh, well, I mean, I'm not going to say we have blood on our hands, but I think we might have blood on our hands. Well, for, for, for a few decades, more than a few decades, 12-step AA was, was the only game in town. Yeah. And, um, you know, I've known a lot of people who've had a lot of success in AA, and I've, I've known a lot of people who that program has failed. And I, and I don't say that they failed inside the program. I say that the program failed them. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I noticed that tw- a 12-step model is not really something you guys use very much at, uh, at Oro, if at all. Uh, what, what's the thinking behind that? Uh, and how did the, you come to the conclusion that you did not want to be focused on 12-step, rather yeah. on what I would think I would admire using evidence-based treatment and yeah. you know, things of that nature? And, and I'll just interject, of course, the number one evidence-based treatment is the therapeutic bond. Mm. So there's, there's more research into the importance of the therapeutic bond, which is what the compassionate care model really is, and mm. Carl Rogers and person-centered therapy mm-hmm. and unconditional positive regard. That's the therapeutic bond. And more studies have determined that more than any other particular modality, therapeutic modality, the therapeutic bond is going to contribute to positive outcomes. So, um, yeah, so in that sense, it is very much evidence-based. I would say, uh, for me, I was also sentenced to AA after a DUI. (laughs) Yeah, It happened to work for me. I went into my first meeting, I heard, you know, myself uh, and someone talking my language, and I, like, never looked back. Uh, it's not like that for a lot of people. It's really hard to like force somebody into AA. What ends up happening is we don't force our clients to, to go. They end up going. We'll drive them. But it'll be one uh, client who went to this really cool young person's meeting and they're like, hey, you got to come, you got to come. They figure it out themselves. Mm-hmm. They find their way there. And isn't that going to be so much more powerful once they found it, because by the way, Cochrane Review did a study of um, a, a meta study of every study of every good high quality study of twelve step programs, um, and found that it's just as effective as treatment. And guess what? It costs a fraction of the price. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and I'm saying that as a treatment provider. So, by the way, like save yourself some grief and some money. Yeah. Go to a meeting. Yeah, but we're not an AA meeting. We're not a 12-step meeting. Our goal is to provide ultra-high-quality clinical care. Right. That's what the insurance companies are paying for. That's what people are paying for. So if they want to go to a meeting, they're free to go after after programming, um, and we'll drive them. But two, in the traditions of uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, it says like we won't uh, lend our name to any outside organization. Mm-hmm. So it would be um, wrong, frankly, for us to be running uh, step study groups, book study groups Mm -hmm. for us to be focused on, you know, you working with your sponsor or whatever it is, they can do that. But that's not what what we do. Yeah. There's plenty of rehabs that do it, though. Yeah, you know, and and some Hazelton, you know. Yeah, it, it, some of them are all twelve step, and I love reading stories about Hazelton. You know, some of those the memoirs. But when a lot of what you're talking about in your book and and your philosophy for Oro 
kind of goes counter to what AA is saying. I wonder, do you have, um, you know, it, like there's no, you're not doing a shame-based program. It's not puritanical. And not every AA group is the same. We know that. But one thing that we do on the show is we try and prepare people for the pitfalls, the things that you can run into in AA that are actually destructive. And I feel like, like we say that same thing, AA is great, but you know, buyer beware. Remember who you're talking to. Get the the community out of it. It's like instant support community, but there are portions of the program that can be detrimental. And I think you talk about that in your book or write about it. Well, and 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 when we wrote the book, I mean, if anything, I fell in love with AA all over again. I realized it's not what what uh, is happening out there to a large degree. AA, if anything, is that moment between Dr. Bob and Bill Wilson. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I, I recounted in the story, but these are two equals, just sharing, just hanging out. Right, one alcoholic um, talking to another. One alcoholic talking to another. With so Belladonna. all the we, <laughs> right? Well, it was it was that too, but all, all of the um, well, and it was Roland Hazard, and it was it was Carl Jung. It was all this weird stuff. And in fact, in his letter to C.G. Jung. He's saying that all of our early members, they're into the I Ching. Mm-hmm. Uh, I saw they're, that. Yeah, they're, that's very interesting. They're, they're doing seances hmm. uh, at Bill Wilson's house, which is a museum now called Stepping Stones. Um, there's what they called the spook room, where they would do sort of uh, channeling and seances wow. and things like that. That's cool. They were into, they, they, they were into Emmett Fox, uh, which was part of the New Thought Movement right, or the Mind right. Care Movement. Bill Wilson was very into, um, there were three books that he, he would recommend to people. Uh, William James, The Variety of Religious Experiences, uh, um, um, a book by a Canadian psychiatrist named Richard Buck called Cosmic Consciousness, um, which he said described his white light experience perfectly. And uh, and then the third book was Aldous Huxley, The Doors of Perception, mm. about his experience with mescaline. He said, read these three books. Before the big book was printed, they were printing out, um, they were giving people, again, Emmett Fox readings, so new thought. Yeah, uh, that's great that they're using, uh, you know, outside literature. One thing I where, What happened to that stuff, though? Yeah, because... In the program, where did it go? Exactly. They, they shut know? down well, outside literature. Well, and it was the influence of Synanon. It was the influence yeah, of right Synanon, not only on the treatment uh, industry and on even on the Minnesota model, even on Hazelden, where they disavowed it in mm-hmm. like 1985, but the damage was done. They said, you know, we and and it, and Maya, Maya Salvitz traces it beautifully from Synanon, uh, which was this awful kind of tough love, conf- violent, confrontational model, through uh, all of these other facilities, uh, including through Eagleville Hospital in Pennsylvania, straight to Hazelden, mm-hmm. where they had it was called the hot seat, and they had a list mm-hmm. of like twenty one like derogatory, awful things you could say about the person sitting in the middle of the room, um, and. Uh, it started with young adults, but it spread to every unit at Hazleton. Of course, Hazleton was and still is a training site. So it trained all of these other, like no. it just entered the culture, but it also fit. It was so readily accepted because of the violent ways that we've treated people with mental health problems mm. Mm. for hundreds of years. So it just fit. It was perfect. But um, that influenced not only treatment, but it influenced AA itself. That's the problem. Mm-hmm. And so AA, AA became um, something that it wasn't 
kind of intending to be. What's interesting is Synanon started because they kicked Chuck Diedrich, the founder of Synanon, out of AA, basically right. because he was identifying as a narcotic addict. Right, right. I still, read that. You, yeah. you still see that in meetings, by the way, less and less, uh, but it still happens. So he's like, fine. F you, I'm going to go start my own group, Went kicked out all the Alkies, <laughs> right? And started Synanon, which was basically then kind of the shadow of AA. <laughs> um, so watch what whatever you uh, reject is just going to kind of come back. Right, intolerance <laughs> bred this sort of destructive yeah. pattern of quote-unquote treatment. Uh, it's so amazing. Well, and fit like a lock, uh, a key into a lock with uh, yeah. the American uh, ideas of, of uh, shame and everything else that yeah. existed in, and uh, against and addicts work. and so forth, right? I mean, you know, um, all of this stuff. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm always trying to convince Mike, you know, that AA isn't quite as bad as he thinks it is. You know, he's it's really not like <laughs> no, it's great. Book, it can I, be great. I, I think the the idea of a fellowship of people with like like, you know, I mean, that's what you need is connection, right? And it, it, when you have a, an addiction issue, you need to connect with people. Just connecting with yourself, but, connecting with the universe, connecting with the divine healing. Okay, exactly. And I and I come back again to these to these <laughs> letters because I just read them um, just. You know, an, an hour ago, again, because they're fascinating. Anyone should look them up, the correspondences between Bill Wilson and Carl Jung. But Jung, basically, he believed he was only interested in people in the sort of second half of their lives. And he said in, in every case, what they need is something he called the religious or the spiritual function, mm -hmm. um, period. That's what they need. And that's what he said about Roland Hazard, that he needed not psychiatry, not medicine, but once you kind of reach the limits of rationality, mm -hmm. you need that kind of um, conversion experience, well, so, which the Greeks called metanoia. Ooh. So, so where does where does shadow work fit into all this? Shadow work, because you really because if you are trying if you are trying to carry a message like of um, of community and everything and and hold yourself out as an example of this new paradigm, you better have your own house in order mm. before well, you precisely. head out there into the world, right? And and Jung was, you know, he may have been a mystic, but he was also a, somewhat of of a, of a practical psychotherapist. Um, so the idea of addressing all those negative parts inside of us and integrating them into our larger personality is huge, right? I mean, you, hmm. you need to sort of fix your own house before you can go out and fix somebody else's house. Well, and that's what AA is. AA is that shadow work. That's what the fourth and fifth steps are. The, you know, searching and fearless moral inventory. Fearless because it's impossible. So Marie-Louise von Franz, who was kind of Jung's right-hand woman, she was talking about the Oxford groups, but I think the same holds for AA. She says, you know, someone stands up at an Oxford group and they say, you know, I drink too much or I'm selfish. She says, they don't believe it. Mm. They say that, but they don't believe it. Because to have a true encounter with your shadow mm -hmm. is one of the most difficult, one of the most impossible things in the world. That's what you do with an analyst. Presumably, hopefully, I guess, that's what you do with a good sponsor. Apparently, Dr. Bob was incredible at it. He would do it in this really kind way, mm. um, kind of bring someone into contact with their character defects. But everything we reject about ourselves, everything we're, uh, that's just too difficult to admit about ourselves. But that's I, I, not I, only I, what, the, what the addict has to do, that's what America, that's what we have to do. We have to reckon with our history and present, uh, and it's tough stuff. It's very difficult. Mm. I mean, are they defects of character or, or are they, 
Here comes the Buddhist. <laughs> or they just are. They're neither they good nor bad. I mean, you know, you can, you can assign value to anything that you feel inside of yourself. But I mean, because, you know, the thing that's inside of you that you may consider a defect, it may not be a defect to somebody else. It may be an asset, you know? Yeah, yeah but I mean, I think we, it's fairly obvious sometimes, at least to me, when something is, is causing me um, pain or problems, uh, something just came to me that I just have to say. Yes. It's not a total uh, non sequitur, but just talking to you and remembering, you know, the book and everything like that, and it occurred to me that you you looks like your support sounds like you're supporting the spiritual treatment type of thing or a spiritual aspect of it right but at the same time oro recovery is supposed to be uh you know evidence based and a like as you said we you know treat clinically addiction now wouldn't it be irresponsible for in a clinical setting for you to prescribe prayer and confession for, you know, to treat a medical uh, condition. Well, and I know right, you're against exactly. the, we, yeah, the medicalization of well, treatment. Well, exactly. And so what we do do instead, because I think, you know, prayer and meditation, it's just too saddled with the, with the kind of Christian connotations. But yep. we offer uh, yoga, sweat lodge, um, uh, meditation, certainly mindfulness, but you do MAT as well, based. right? So you're kind of you have trying to have your cake and eat it too, right? You yeah. you want to have the treatment, you want to have the spirituality, and then you're also saying, I mean, do you guys prescribe like buprenorphine and uh, and that's we do, but I don't think those things are are, are incompatible. That's mm. the old paradigm. They would say, right. well, you, there's no way you can have a spiritual experience if you're on right. buprenorphine or, or, or Prozac naloxone or whatever, or yeah. Prozac yeah. even. Precisely. Look, at, I'm a little bit anti psychiatry mm. personally, and you know you can you can read that in the book. Yeah, totally. Um, but at the same time, these medications often buy one time to do the work. So they're not like a magic bullet, and they're not going to be the thing that that helps you, but they might be the thing that helps stabilize you enough to even begin to consider something like meditation or service work or, you know, volunteering or whatever it might be, or kind of uh, uh, grappling with one's uh, childhood and different attachment styles or whatever those other things might be. Yeah. But, um, but this is, I mean... I didn't, again, sort of set out to write this book with Bob to come to the conclusion that, God, this really is a spiritual problem. Mm -hmm. God, they really did figure this out <laughs> in AA. And like, what are we doing? This is not a medical problem. Interestingly, though, AA uh, helped addiction become a medical problem, which was yes. an improvement over the moral failure model. Right. But yeah. if you if you read in the first editions, they're saying like we who have recovered from a hopeless state of mind and body, like they they recovered. But according to the National Institute of Drug Addiction and Nora Volkov, this is a chronic relapsing brain disease. So which one is it? Mm -hmm. Right. And I what I worry about like, cause we talk a lot about these highfalutin ideas and, and treatment models like any graces that are great for quote unquote high bottom drunks. But I think about myself in the throes of heroin addiction and would, would an oral recovery type of philosophy be too nebulous for me? Maybe what I needed would is just like, you need to do X, Y, Z, you know, is there some 
benefit to just having, uh, you know, that's what the 12 steps, it's a design for living. It's one through 12, you know, whereas you have, you know, if there's too much, too, too much vague, like, oh, it could be this and everybody's different. And, you know, I mean, I worry that the, the acute sufferer of substance use disorder may get lost in all of that. And maybe it doesn't really shouldn't come in until they've been through, you know, getting clean in a very, you know, regimented way first. I don't know. What do you think about that? Well, some people are like, oh, well, I had to go to jail. I'm of the mind, like, hey, if you're into that, like, <laughs> that's cool. Um, that's what they're into. But I also loved uh, Sandy Beach was one of my favorite AA speakers. Oh, yeah, I know him. I like that guy. And, <laughs> and he, I remember listening to this thing. It was like days long, all about the 11th step, which is like sought through prayer and meditation to, you know, establish uh, 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 constant or conscious contact with God as we understood God, I think is the 11th step, if I recall. Um, and what he said is like, tr and it was so beautiful the way they made AA because it's like, it's not go to your church. It's not go to your Christian bookstore. It's like, go to a new age bookstore. Uh, you know, this is what Sandy Beach would say, pick up different books. Maybe mm -hmm. you're into Kabbalah. Maybe you're into, I mean, what I've got into now is like the ancient Greek and Egyptian mysteries. Ooh. I found, I found everything I was looking for how many years, 16 years later. It took me that long, but it's a search. It's a yeah. search for what resonates with you. But let's, I, I don't think there's any harm in having somebody begin that search now. So we just provide this kind of wide berth for people to, you know, find whatever kind of gets them excited or gets them enthusiastic. And of course, even that enthusi enthusiastic, enthusiasmos in the ancient Greek meant to be engodded, to yeah. be like, uh, and and they also, and, and that was related to their idea of divine mania. So mania, uh, madness itself was a divine possession, and it wasn't a bad thing. So even addiction itself, mental health problems, I look at it as a descent into an underworld. Mm. And I think collectively as not only America, but as a whole planet, mm. certainly the West, but I think at this point globally, we're undergoing a collective initiation. Huh. And every every initiation throughout history and across every culture is basically an initiation through death and rebirth, period. Maybe it's a form of possession and we need it to be exercised. You know, sometimes I talk <laughs> about when I was using, it was like... Like I said, I like the paranormal stuff. Like I, it was like I was possessed. When I think about the things that I did, the the way I behaved, and then I exercised that demon, and now I'm a new person. Maybe we well, can look at it that way. Well, that's fascinating. That's actually a fascinating idea. And if you want to uh, uh, talk about that, uh, there's a guy named Donald Calshed, and he's one of my favorite Jungians uh, today. I think I don't know where he's from actually, but he's living, brilliant, and he talks about. Uh, uh, demonic possession mm. as a, basically um, in the cases of severe childhood trauma. Mm. So the child has undergone severe trauma and this uh, daimon or demon, whatever you want to call it, is actually like a uh, protective. It might be a great mother archetype, but it has this uh, wrathful aspect because its job is to hold the divine inner child, the, the, uh, you, you say inner child, it sounds awful, but you understand there's, <laughs> mm -hmm. there's, there's a divine child within that is actually a twin. It's, it's the divine child of light and it's the orphan. It's both. And mm. so 
the demon or daimon's job is to protect that child of light, to make sure it it encapsulates it, to make sure that that is never hurt, Mm. so that at some future point, perhaps, um, a new uh, life can be built around that nucleus right so it 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 separates it away it it separates it away and it protects it to say i will never let this happen to you again now unfortunately what happens is it will protect that child of light against everything and everybody even people who love that person right and it it, it's it doesn't have any discernment it's blind Mm. and it it actually not only cuts the person off from the world Mm. And from people who might love that person, it cuts them off from their own feelings. Mm. And it actually, what it does is it puts, a, in Jungian terms, it puts a gate at the uh, ego self, and I mean self with a capital S, mm. ego self axis. Mm. And so, um, what needs to happen, and, and, and what Kalshid calls it, is the self-care system kind of um, run amok. It's, it's, it's a normal self-care system because we all might dissociate hmm. um, to a degree to protect ourselves or to be protected. But in this case, it's just cutting us off. It's wrathful. It's lashing out. Um, and a whole personality is built around this. Uh, what needs to happen is the therapist needs to kind of get in there and align with the client and identify this daimon or this demon and basically do battle with it to show how it's ruining this person's life and to build a new life around a different center rather than that being the center. It's Man, fascinating. What's I that guy's that. name again? What, what is Donald Kalshid. Donald Kalshid. Okay. I love that. Look into that. It harkens back to the <laughs> inner addict we talk about sometimes. Sometimes when I'm you know talking to some of our fans who are having trouble some of my advice is you treat that voice that's telling you to use that craving as a separate entity. And it, well, exactly. Yeah. So, so Kalsha too talks about the this um, this demon. Let's just call it a demon. Uh, this this demon as a master of trance and dissociation. Mm. Wow. So its job is to keep us in a trance, in a state of trance. And this is too, again, going back to these letters between Jung and Wilson, um, Jung tells Wilson, this is a classic case of spiritus contra spiritum, spirit against spirit, mm-hmm. right? So, and it's the, I don't want to spoil or alert the book, but I finished saying like, uh, uh, America, our culture is a spell. And the only way to fight a spell is with another spell, <laughs> right? And so we've been fighting it with alcohol and drugs. I mean, we need to do better than that, a more powerful spell than that. Wow. But, um, uh. but yeah, so it, its job is to keep us asleep. I mean, it's just too hard. It's too much. The pain is too real. The pain of being separate. The pain of… Why all the pain, right, Dr. Why Mate? Why all the pain? Mm-hmm. Why all the pain, yeah. Wow. Mind blower. Mm. Yeah, well, I think I've ta- I tried. I've taken over some of the conversation. No, I know you have I'm, a lot of I'm speechless. I'm pretty speechless too, and I'm like, <laughs> I mean, that's the kind of thing we love. This this pursuit of knowledge, gnosis, if you will, um, and that that's like kind of what we're all about. And I, I feel like, um, yeah, this is exactly where we want to go with the with this podcast and just exploring these things. And that's why this book is so great. Reaching back into history 
and reframing it to to deal with the problems of today. It's just uh, it's I just keep coming back to the the the, the fact that it's so difficult to recognize uh, another person's face in your own in, in the way our society structured today. And mm-hmm. and how do you get how do you develop that connection with everybody else? It's a bridge. I mean, there's um there's other I guess they were more Freudian, so psychoanalytic, but um, Winnicott and uh, Kohut uh, basically made an argument for there being a kind of positive narcissism mm. that the the baby imagining it can snap its finger and produce milk <laughs> at, at, at will is actually like not a bad thing because uh, later in life it gives that same child now an adult presumably the confidence and the courage to be creative mm. and to kind of make their world um now the limitation of narcissism and and the sort of diminishing returns are we may be the center of the world but we somehow like you say struggle to imagine so is everybody else and how do you create that bridge between self and other the i and thou well that I, Buber, martin buber talked about i guess you realize that in an infinite universe everywhere is the center of the universe right uh-huh. and the circumference is nowhere yeah uh-huh. so. <laughs> I think that you, was heraclitus i believe yeah yeah it's brilliant maybe that's a, someplace to start you know well, we are. We are each the center of the universe. And, and you know, so Jung called it the inner fire, um, this center or the self or the self, uh, the uh, psyche. I mean, that or the soul. Uh, Plotinus believed that there's only one soul. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that's my uh, feeling, too, that there really is only one self. I mean, you have uh, cultures like India, you know, and, and Vedantic thought, which is sort of basically had that from the beginning of time, you know, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you have a much more, or you had up until India started heading in a Western direction, you had sort of a much more magical realism in that country. I mean, mm. you know, the, uh, the divine was palpable. It was in everybody. You saw it in everybody. It was just everywhere. You know, that's where, that's where bowing comes from to recognize the divine in right. the other. Mm. So, you know, Buddhism yeah. and all of Eastern, culture comes from that idea that we are each the brahman pretending to be all these different individuals so it's not a great leap i mean um we need to understand those other traditions i think to shed light on our own and again plotinus understood that too that we are really the one soul the pleroma the the one literally descended into the sublunary material realm so maybe that's where the where where the cause for optimism arises. Yes, is the spread of of Eastern thought and philosophy across this country the way it has in the last fifty years or so, mm-hmm. and the way it continues to accelerate, and and how your more organized uh, Abrahamic religions are sort of on the down slope while Eastern thought is ascending. You know, Abrahamic right. religions get a bad rap, I think, because, <laughs> you know, I agree. They, they really do. I'm actually a Sunday school teacher at a Presbyterian church that I grew up in. Now, I'm obviously not a very dogmatic, you know, um, conservative Christian, but I see, you know, in the same way that we talk about how, you know, what AA is today sometimes is not how it was originally intended. I think 
I can definitely say that the way Christianity is today is not the way I feel like it was originally, you know, formulated or the things we're learning about, you know, that, that Jesus, you know, was, was discussing and what he was teaching and what we have today are completely different. I mean, do unto others. I think a lot of those teachings, same thing with AA, same thing with other religions, they get bastardized by human beings who are not enlightened and they're using it for the wrong purposes. So, I mean, Jesus didn't have an AR-15 and an American flag. I mean, he did, but you know, he didn't use it or flaunt it. Um, but well, yeah, do and, and again, there's there's the um, pagan continuity hypothesis. Um, but you don't even have to buy that. You would just go. You would just kind of reverse engineer Christianity back through um, you know the church fathers, mm-hmm. I guess. Uh, Thomas Aquinas, or, you know, you'll have to maybe help me out, but through uh, pseudo uh, Dionysus, uh, back through the Neoplatonists, mm-hmm. and, you know, back through guys like Iamblichus, who happens to be my favorite, who differed from Plotinus in interesting ways that I only recently learned about, and his own teacher, Porphyry. But it goes then Iamblichus, his student Proclus, through. Um, uh, Damascus and pseudo uh, Dionysus through the early church fathers. But Iamblichus was fascinated by the mysteries, which again were these initiatory rites mm-hmm. that involved, say, the Kukion in the case of Eleusis, the most popular of these uh, mystery religions, um, which ran for 2,000 years in in Eleusis, which followed the uh, story of Persephone and mm. uh, who was abducted into the underworld, uh, whose mother uh, Demeter looked for her with the help of Hecate, the mother of all witches. Um, but also, uh, Iamblichus was fascinated by the Egyptian uh, mysteries, and of course, all of the Greeks looked to the Egyptians as the real deal. And what were they into? And where did that even come from? So, you know, there's so, and, and that's Christianity. Right. That's the yes. West. So, and, and, and by the way, uh, too, where did uh, the Greek sort of philosophical and Neoplatonic movement go? When the Roman Empire made it illegal, they all moved to Syria. That's actually where Iamblichus was from. But um, it moved into the Sufi tradition. So, like Ibn Arabi, for example, one of the very, uh, you know, greatest, maybe greatest uh, Sufi philosophers ever, uh, was called the son of Plato. Mm-hmm. Um, he was referred to as, as the son of Plato. So we can find our own Western tradition in the um, mystical um, Islamic tradition and uh, in Christianity. Yeah, and it's everywhere. So it's everywhere. We're and all the so, same, it, yeah. It's just you have to... And, yep. and it's as fascinating as, I would argue, as any Eastern tradition or even any um, um, basically indigenous uh, tradition found anywhere in the world. Yeah, well, the ideas at their essence are not all that disparate from one another. No, they're not. So, you know, it's it's the cultural trappings of the society. And it even happens to some extent to, to Buddhism as it's moved west into, into the Americas, you know. But... Um, certainly with Christianity, because you just, you look at, at, you know, you go back to the desert fathers, you go back to that, um, you know, nascent period in the early church. And then you fast forward 2000 years and you have uh, snake handling and uh, guns and flags and, and all that kind of shit. You yeah. Know? It gets crazy. So, I but mean, it, you, you got to distill it down to the essence, man. You do. You but know? I think bringing this back to what Evan had said at the start of this recent topic 
is that studying all of these different religions, studying the way people believe all of the different, you know, when you think that they're so different, but when you really study these things, for me, what I realize, and including different um, recovery modalities, there are so many common threads, just like we were just discussing, and you realize, or I realized, how alike really we all are. And that is an exercise I've been doing for the past couple of years, is I go out of my way when I look at a stranger on the street, I try to see myself and God simultaneously. Mm. And I do this as much as I can, and I start to do it, and it actually changed the way I, I speak to people. Mm-hmm. It changed the way... I, I don't get as angry at people because I have instant compassion because I'm thinking of them as me and uh, and God and the universe. And if you can, for me, when I when I see it that way, it, it makes me a lot more compassionate. Yeah. But studying Same. these various religions helps with that. Yeah. Same. And 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 back to the shadow for a minute, because of course the idea with shadow projection is everything intolerable and unacceptable and that we reject about ourselves, we will project onto others right. as a moral as a moral failing. Mm-hmm. So really any time and guess what it says in the uh, chapter on the tenth step in the AA book that Bill Wilson wrote, um, the twelve and twelve, it says something to the effect of it is a spiritual axiom that anytime we're disturbed by you know, someone else, we're really disturbed about ourselves. Like, so they understood this um, because again, back to these correspondences in the early, the the more thoughtful members, I think Bill Wilson writes of, you know, the early AA, they were all interested in your ideas. Mm. But of course, I mean, Jung's ideas were ancient. He was a Gnostic, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, his, his whole uh, red book was, you know, basically kind of downloaded to him by his kind of this Gnostic father, Philemon, who, who was his soul talking to him. Um, so, and that was only published in 2008. So, right. every, and, and this even connects back to, you know, you'd ask, well, how do you square this program of yours being spiritual and being scientific? Well, sometimes we have to clothe ourselves in the kind of customary garb mm. or else no one's no one's going to take us seriously oh yeah, yeah we're evidence-based a hundred percent for sure <laughs> right here's this incense and in our sweat lodge yeah well, i love that yeah, i love great. that i think we're coming to i think we're I think we're gonna to have end, to wrap yeah. but i mean i had all of these well we had a lot um i think we had a good conversation no it was great um yeah. I just, uh, I was trying to think because now what I've got, I've got Evan here. I'm like, what did I want to ask him? Um, I don't know. What's a day in the life of Evan Haynes working in oral recovery like? I mean, I listened to your, your wife's podcast a little bit. You guys sound like you're just having a, such a great time, you know, diving into recovery. It sounds like a dream and you're working in recovery, you know, which was a dream of mine. And what's it like, Evan, to just be like pursuing your dreams in recovery, helping people? I mean, it sounds amazing. I, I feel blessed. I mean, this was my calling. My parents met in an outpatient clinic in 1969. <laughs> no way. So, yeah, any, anytime our staff are like, you know, the clients are fraternizing, I'm like, oh, yeah, my parents met in treatment. What do you, I don't understand. What are, you, what are you trying to say? Yeah, what are you trying uh, to say? Something, something wrong with me? Or, uh, but so, no, what 
I've been doing since the fall is I went back to school, sort of, we wrote the book, following from the book, I was just on fire. Yeah. I was, I had all of these things I was learning about and I just wanted to keep going. So I enrolled in a PhD program at Pacifica. So cool. And right. So I'm going back to get my, uh, doctorate in psychology, um, at Pacifica and, because what I wanted to do is get more involved with the clients, mm-hmm. helping them directly. Awesome. Um, yeah. You'd have that garb. Kind of, pardon me? That would give you that garb. You know, I am a therapist. I am a PhD. Right. It gives exactly. you more, you know, latitude and uh, respect. That's great. It, it's all it is. It's a respectable sheen. And, yeah. and in the process of earning the respectable sheen, I get to learn. I get to just keep reading and keep learning and writing you know my dissertation will be probably on something super weird and yeah it always is right (laughs) turn that into another book (laughs) so cool well um thank you i got your book right here so just like you know on tv shows you watch tv shows they always do this we have can america recover by evan haynes and bob farst you can find it on amazon run to your local barnes and noble (laughs) Thank you so much, Evan. This was so great. And it's been great just chatting with you back and forth. Um, yeah. And for recovery nerds like us, this is a real treat. Yeah, for oh, sure. Thank you, guys. It was a total pleasure. I could, you know, you, you guys are wonderful. I could keep going on yeah. for hours with you. So <laughs> Me too. if you want to pick up the conversation where we left off, I'd be more than happy to. Uh, we'll, we'll probably take you up on that. We'll do it. Because I really enjoyed this. And, You're going to uh, hear from me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Like, wow, that was something, huh? Holy shit. You know what we didn't do? We we didn't ask him, can America recover? I think he, no, he, he did. said... he did. I'm did we? We him. never got the no, answer. We got it. I think um, the answer is he believes that it can. I was just talking to Mike. I was saying, like, you know, that didn't go as planned. It went a bazillion times better. Yeah, way better. You know, some of the stuff he started to get into, and I feel like we were poking and prodding a little bit, you know, throwing a couple curveballs, and he took it, ran with it, and uh, he wow. Knows, he knows what he's talking I can't about. wait to listen. Did you ever like that? I can't wait to listen to this episode. Yeah. Um, so thank you so much, Evan. Yeah, definitely, guys. Can America Recover? And uh, if you can finish this book. It's by Evan Haynes and Bob Farce. We'll put a link in the show notes to um, if you could buy it through our Amazon affiliate, that would be great. So that about does it for today. It does. Um, crap. I had a good time. Did you? That was uh, that was really cool. Thank yeah. you so much for listening, guys. Visit us at middleagesrecovery.com. Podbean, Apple Podcast, Facebook, Instagram, Spotify, YouTube, and Twitter. So, tweet us a twat. You twit. Support your favorite show. That's us. Drop That's a five-star review um, on uh, Apple Podcasts and join our private Facebook group. Buy a t-shirt please or just write and say hello um we love meeting new monsters and chopping it up join the inner sanctum patreon.com slash recovery in the middle ages we have this awesome discussion group on there there's video this interview yes will eventually be posted you can see the video of evan and look into his beautiful eyes and, as he's, and you can see half of each one of our faces yeah yes you don't need to look at it but evan's gonna look great yeah. and um you know join us and um I really, I really and that's it. it. And finally, yeah, finally, the best way to help the show is to share it with a friend. If you get something out of our little show, what should they do? Share, share the it love with a friend and, and help grow the RMA movement. <laughs> yes. And as we say, non proficiat perfectum. It's progress, not perfection. We'll see you next time. Be good.